But a real quick, before I, I call Charlie up to do the reading, I want to just set the stage a little bit, a little bit of recap from last week. Last week, um, <clears throat> excuse me, last week when we started the letter, we didn't get into the passage itself. We kind of did this survey of about, you know, you know 30,000 feet, like this flyover, and we talked a bit about the context. And we talked about just some of the issues that Paul is dealing with in uh, the church, churches that he's writing to. We talked about the influence of um, the false teaching of Gnosticism and uh, the possibility of, of even some Judaizers still there. Uh, nonetheless, there's these influences nonetheless that are um, seeping into the church. And what I loved about our passage this morning is that John just immediately begins the letter laying down the doctrine. He, he, we'll, we'll see as we go throughout the letter, he'll keep building on it, he'll keep exhorting and encouraging and admonishing at times, but I just love that in these first four verses, he does not play around. He goes right into, here is the truth, and if you don't get this right, then nothing else matters. If you don't understand this, what we proclaim to you, then really the rest of this letter, it just falls apart. And so a question that I want us to be thinking about as we go through these verses this morning, and I'll call Charlie up now as I give this question, is how thankful are you for the word of life? That's something we're going to be a question we're going to be examining this morning. Um, but with that, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. That which have come to the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are right on these things, so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing to you this morning, that we would come to a deeper understanding of who you are and how you have revealed yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that if there's anyone in here who does not understand the truth about our Lord Jesus, that He is the second person of the Trinity, that He is fully God and fully man, that as we uh, go through this passage this morning and as we go through this letter, that we would uh, come to better understand how you have revealed yourself for our salvation and for your glory. Use me this morning. 
Let it be your word that shines forth and that I would just proclaim it as faithfully as possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So our first verse this morning is where we'll start. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning or about the word of life. So I'm going to start on the outside, the, the, the beginning and end of this verse here, and then we'll look at that in the middle. But we start with the, in the beginning, concerning the word of life. In the beginning should take us back, we talked about this a little bit last week, but we'll recap it here, should take us back to creation. Like in John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But in the beginning, this idea of beginning, is John is calling his readers back to understand all the way at the outset of creation, this Word of life, this Word of God, He was there. And all things came into being through Him. And everything that was made was by His Word. In fact, even in the beginning, we see in John's Gospel and in John's letter, again, he likes to contrast light and darkness. And even in the beginning of creation, the first thing that we see is light casting out darkness. And so this harkens us back to the very beginning of creation itself. The very beginning of God's self-revelation to His people. But it's not just the old beginning. It's the new beginning as well. Because new creation begins with the word of life. Just like old creation could not exist without the word of God the sun calling it into existence, so this new beginning, this new creation, this new birth, this new you doesn't happen unless Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, unless He begins the new creation. And so as we read this letter, not just this morning, but just in general, as we go through this letter, as we preach and teach through this letter, I want us thinking in terms of this new creation. I want us thinking in terms of this new beginning that has been given through Jesus Christ. Things are starting new because of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus the Messiah. The light of Christ has defeated the darkness. All of life has always come from the word of life. And so the new life that we live in Christ is no different. And so John says, Jesus is the word of life. He doesn't just bring life. He doesn't just give life. Life is found in him. All joy, all love, all peace, 
are found in God Himself. The abundance and fulfillment of what it means to be a human being, to be made in the image of God, to walk and to talk and to use your creativity and the gifts that God has given you, to have a family, to have a marriage, to have relationships like friendships, to have a job and work. All these things, the fulfillment of all of that can only be found in the abundant word of life, Jesus Christ. And so John is telling us that God has communicated that truth to his people by the Son. And this this takes us into kind of this, this middle part here where he says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and touched with our hands. I just want to take this apart a little bit here and break this down. He starts with what we have heard. You know, hearing is an important part of how God has communicated to his people. Deuteronomy, I forgot, I got slides here, so I'm going to have to make sure I'm on it this morning. Oh, I, I jumped the gun there. That was my fault. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. See, here's the thing. Hearing comes before reading. We have to remember that reading is a modern-day privilege. Don't waste it. This is a blessing. We should be reading the Word of God each day, but we have to remember that being able to have the books that we have, even the multiple Bibles and stuff like that, that that is a modern-day privilege. God communicated to His people through the Word of God that was written down by prophets like Moses and then read in the presence of all the people or read in the temple or read at the tabernacle. And the people would hear, and he says, listen, hear the word of the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then you take that and you teach that to your children. Right? Children, we we, we know this, children hear before they can speak, and they speak before they can read. Right? Teaching our children this idea of they need to listen, hearing the word of the Lord. You shall teach them diligently and then shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Uh, This isn't really in the notes here, but I thought about it this morning as as I was getting ready to come up here. But, you know, when we think about this passage, I almost just want to ask, and this is rhetorical, right? But I want to ask ourselves, how often are we having these sort of conversations about the word of God? And we can get so tied down on just wasted conversation. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that there aren't important issues uh, to talk about. What I'm saying is that when we talk about those, it has to be those conversations built on the foundation of God's Word. So whether we're talking about politics or current issues or struggles within the family or hardships at work, we bring everything back to the Word of God. And what John is saying is we have heard from God. Just as Moses heard from God on the mountain, 
so too the apostles heard directly from Jesus. They were taught by Jesus for three years, but even after the resurrection, he opened up their mind to the scriptures about himself after his glorification. Look at Luke 24, 44 to 47. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Right? So now he's talking to them after he's risen from the dead. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so what Paul's saying is, this is what we have heard from the Lord and this is what we now communicate to you all. Then he goes to what we have seen. They did not just hear from God, they saw God. John 1.18, he tells us, No one has seen God at any time except the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made God known. Now this is, this is what John's talking about here is that no one has laid eyes on the Father. No one has seen God except through the revealing of the Son except through the revealing of the second person of the Trinity. And we look even at Old Testament scriptures where Moses couldn't look upon the face of God. And God was veiled in a cloud as he led Israel through the wilderness. And the holy of holies, the holy place of God, is guarded by the veil of cherubim. Yet the invisible God has become visible. They saw God incarnate and they saw the glorified Son after His resurrection. So God now has come out from behind the curtain. The cherubim no longer guard the garden and gazing upon God's face is no longer forbidden. While the Father is still invisible, what can be understood about Him is revealed in the Son. And so seeing makes the apostles witnesses. The apostles bore witness to what they saw as they walked with God. We'll talk about witnesses in a, in a little bit here. And then the last thing he says is what we have touched. This is most likely a reference to the touching of Jesus after the resurrection. Uh, we see as Jesus speaks to his disciples in Luke 24, 39, he says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now here's what's interesting. I love what Luke does uh, with this text that Jesus already is knocking the, the uh, Gnostics and the Judaizers out of the church. He's already refuted them. See that I am flesh and bones. Touch me. I am not a spirit. A spirit doesn't have flesh. And Jesus is saying, I am the risen one. I am the Messiah. And touch and feel me. I am here. I am real. I am still incarnate. He says to Thomas, who doubted, he said, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it to my side, right? The wounds of Christ were there to bear witness to the fact that this is the risen Lord. The same God man who was nailed to the cross is the same God man who rose from the dead. But of course, think of all the other physical interactions that Jesus had with people. The touching of uh, 
The eyes, as, as um, Ed, I almost said John for some reason, I'm just stuck in John here. As Ed talked about, right, the reaching out the hand to Peter to raise him from the water, the, the many healings, even John reclining on Jesus at the Last Supper. Touching, by the way, is significant here because Israel was not permitted under the Old Covenant to touch the holiest of things. Think of the story of Uzzah, where God strikes him dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. Now we look at that story and we say, man, that's sad. He was just trying to reach out and maybe help. Well, the point is, is he's not worthy to touch the holiest of things. I want us to imagine for a moment a wealthy family is throwing a fancy dinner party at their house. And at this house, there's food catered and there's servants walking around with drinks and appetizers. When you think of something like this, we recognize and we know that the servants are not permitted to rule the home. They're not permitted to go into the master bedroom. They're not permitted to just lounge on the couch and turn on the TV. What they are allowed to do is limited because they are not part of the household. Now imagine the children living in that house. While their status is that of heirs, while they're children, they're still not permitted to be at the party either. They may have a babysitter or a nanny that keeps them away, but they do not have free roam of the house. They have an early bedtime, right? We understand there's still a level of uh, restriction there. But then when the children of the household are adults, when the fullness of time has come, they gain full access to the party without any babysitter or any nanny, without any mediator. They have access to the house and the home. And this makes me think of Galatians 4, 1 through 7, where Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a servant or a slave. Although he is an owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The transition from the old covenant to the new covenant is now we have full access to the party. Because the fullness of time has come in the work of Jesus. There is no longer a a prohibition from touching holy things or seeing holy things because the most holy of things that could ever exist has been felt and seen and heard. God became man. He became flesh, visible, audible, tangible. And God's incarnation brought an end to the way that he interacted with his people in the Old Covenant. The incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus marked a transition from old to new, from better to best. And this is what John is writing that he and the apostles have witnessed. Then verses 2 and 3 
and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This idea of manifested. It, so so we, have this, we have this new beginning where God can be heard and seen and touched in a way that has never been before. And not only is it a new beginning and a new creation, but ultimately it's a better beginning. It's a better creation. Mankind, saved by Jesus and brought and adopted into the family of God, is now closer to God than anybody else in history has ever been. Even Adam in the garden did not have the Spirit of God living and dwelling within him. Even Adam in the garden did not have complete and total access into the heavenlies through prayer. He walked with God in the garden, but the Son, the new Adam, brings us even closer. This life has now been revealed. That's what this manifesting is happening. This life was manifested. It's now been revealed. It's now been made known. God has come out from behind the veil. God gives us access to his heavenly throne room. The God of the universe makes himself known to us through his son, Jesus the Messiah. Now I want us to, to think about that for a second. God has always revealed himself through creation. Psalm 19 tells us this. Romans chapter 1 tells us this. God has always revealed himself through his creation, then through his law, and then through his prophets. But now he has made himself known to us in a unique and special and intimate way. God can be known now as a father, a brother, a friend, a spouse. We can know God in a way that no one ever before could. This is the great privilege and joy that you have as a Christian. It's a greater privilege than even Moses or David had access to. They were looking forward to this, to what we get to experience. I want us to take the example of prayer here for this. You know, as I was praying through this sermon and getting ready, I realized, you know, this intimacy with God that we have, this access to his throne room, this direct contact where we no longer need any sort of angelic mediator or priestly mediator other than God himself. And I'm sitting there and I'm just, there's this sin of omission on my part as I recognize that I do not pray as I should. And, and I don't mean like the false piety of, well, none of us pray as we should. None of us do as well as we should. I mean like a deep conviction that I recognize that I'm not praying as I should. That God has manifested himself to me in such a way that nobody knew before Jesus came to all of us Christians this way. And through Jesus, we now have access to God in the holiest of places. And I can talk to God without any special ritual or any tabernacle in the city, and yet I find myself so flippant about prayer. And I know for a lot of us, this is the case as well. Do we realize what we have been given? 
Do we realize where we are when we pray? We are in the presence of the God of the universe. We are in his house. And yet sometimes I think we just waltz through that house and give God a quick hello or we ask for something that we need briefly, almost like a teenager just asking his dad for the car keys. I got other places to be, God. So if you just wouldn't mind handing the keys over. We can be so ungrateful. And I've come to believe that the great test of our thankfulness to God is exposed in our prayer life. Jesus teaches us how to pray and it begins with proclaiming the holiness and the greatness of God who has made himself known to us. Are we thankful that God has made himself known to us? You know, this Thanksgiving when you gather with your friends or your family, and sometimes maybe you guys go around and say what you're thankful for, and I know a lot of us will say things like, we're thankful for salvation, or we're thankful for uh, the family that God's given us. I want you to be thinking, are you thankful that God has made himself known to you? And he has given you access, complete access to him. And if you can say it in such a way that everyone else around the table is like, what are you talking about? Then you get to evangelize to them. Right? So it's a win-win. So then John then talks about the importance of, of witness. He says, and we have seen and we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. We'll stop there. John claims that he and his apostles are witnesses to what they have seen and heard and what they have witnessed, what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have touched. Now they bring testimony. Now they testify about, they proclaim it. They have become the messengers, the angels of eternal life. As the angels would witness God and then proclaim this message to the prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, the apostles who have witnessed God directly now proclaim this message to us. Now, in in the Old Testament, the witness had a responsibility to testify. Uh, Isaiah, I don't have this up here because it's just too long, but Isaiah 43 Uh, 9 through 13. It says, All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. This is God speaking. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witness that they may be justified or let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? 
In Isaiah 44, the very next chapter, this discourse is continued in chapters, or sorry, verses 7 through 11. God said, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. So God has arranged in Isaiah, he's arranged this sort of trial and demands the witnesses come forward and testify. They must demonstrate the deity of their gods. God is putting them, the pagans, to the test. But the pagans have nothing to testify And the Jews that have gone astray and followed after these pagan gods have nothing to testify. They see nothing. They hear nothing. They know nothing. Now contrast that exactly with what John has just said. God has made himself known. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've touched it. We've touched him. And here they see nothing. They hear nothing. And they fail to know. And they will be put to shame. But Israel, however, is told three times in these passages, you are my witnesses. To whom? The nations. This is fulfilled in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The apostles have been given the charge to testify and witness to the word, witness to the word of life. In Acts 1 verse 8 it says, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. In the witnesses... Uh, is, sorry... In Isaiah 43 and 44, the fulfillment is in the witnesses who testify on behalf of God when the nations take their charge against him. And that's what we are called to do today. When the world rages against God, we proclaim that he is the word of life, that he has brought eternal and abundant life. And we do this by living in obedience, showing that he has made us new. And we also do this with evangelism and proclaiming the gospel to the lost people of this world. The lost people of this world and the idols that they are following are making a charge against God that their gods are real and better than Yahweh, than Jesus Christ. And we as believers have the responsibility who have borne witness to the testimony of the apostles and have borne witness to the experience of faith and salvation through Jesus Christ, we are given the responsibility to testify as witnesses against a world that makes that kind of charge. But we're not just the defense. We are also the prosecutor. We make a charge against the false gods of this world. We proclaim that the gods of this world are dead and that everyone must repent and believe in the one true God for his judgment has come and is coming very soon. 
and we do this by thankfulness and joy. The world must see our lives bear witness to the confidence and joy of the true life that we have given. The world must see the thankfulness pouring out of us. What joy, what confidence in the face of any sort of persecution, in the face of a dying world, in the face of a country that's collapsing in on itself, we walk with faith and joy and thankfulness and confidence. And by doing so, we make a charge against the world that your idols are dead. And we do this by speaking truth by speaking scripture in all areas. In the home, at work, in politics, in education, there is no area of life where the lordship of Jesus Christ and the word of life is not proclaimed against this false gods of this world. So then he talks about the result of this witness. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The result of the proclamation of the gospel, of the truth of the word of life, is so that we may have fellowship with the apostles who have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now I thought this was interesting. I had to actually read it a couple times to understand what Paul is, or John, I'm so used to Paul, I'm sorry. <laughs> what, what John is saying here. See, we as Christians cannot be unified in anything other than God himself. However, that unity only comes through having fellowship with the apostles. Now here's what this means. True fellowship with the Father only comes through the living Son. And believing in that Son. True fellowship with the Son only comes through believing the word and witnesses and testimony of the apostles. In other words, you cannot reject or minimize the words of Scripture and have fellowship with the Father. You, just like you cannot reject the Son and have fellowship with the Father, you cannot reject the fellowship with the apostles, the testimony of these witnesses. This is exactly... so. so so let me take us back to our context here. This is exactly what John is doing in chastising these false teachers who have come in. He's saying, these false teachers have come in and they're proclaiming to you a lie about God. They're proclaiming to you a false gospel. They are false teachers. And if you have fellowship with them, you do not have fellowship with us. And if you do not have fellowship with us, you do not have fellowship with the word of life. I went to Moody, and when I graduated from Moody uh, undergrad, I graduated with uh, this false teacher named Brandon Robertson. And he recently tweeted, he said, I don't know why anybody would proudly embrace a biblical worldview. It's an admission that you are trying to embrace ethical paradigms that are at least 2,000 years old. Thank God that most of our ethics have evolved since then and have become more just. And then he says, live by the Spirit, not by the letter. First of all, that's not what that scripture means. Um, but he's not the best exegete. Uh, this serpent has no fellowship with God. He has no fellowship with the Father. He has no fellowship with the Son because he rejects God's witnesses. 
He rejects the teachings of the apostles. He rejects that God has come in the flesh. He rejects the truth of the gospel. And you're right. This is who John in his letter says, these are antichrists. And these antichrists go out from us because they are never a part of us. Now he would claim that he still is a part of us, but because he rejects the testimony of the apostles, John would say, no, you're not. You have no fellowship with the Father or the Son because you have rejected fellowship with his apostles. Now, others do this as well. They may not flat out reject God's word like Brandon does here, but they want to minimize it. They want to pacify it. But notice that this is not what John does. He hits heavy right out of the gate. He begins his letter with radical and divisive doctrine against the Gnostics and against the Judaizers. This is who the word of life is. And we have seen him, we have heard him, we have touched him, we have witnessed him, and if you reject or minimize that, you have no fellowship with us or with God. Now, we don't really like that today as much because we're kind of afraid of being divisive, so we try to massage God's word, we try to soften the blow, and let me just say, do not minimize what God has said. Don't try to soften the blow of God's word. I know people talk about don't hit people over the head with the Bible. I agree. Don't hit people over the head with the Bible. The Bible is a sword. You pierce them with it. It hurts, but ultimately it brings gladness and joy to the soul. And so then John ends here our passage this morning with these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. John writes these things and the apostles testify about the word of life so that their joy may be made complete. See, the word of life brings abundant joy to all who receive him. John speaks about this in his gospel and he speaks about this in his letter. This is another reason for thankfulness, by the way, because this joy that pours out of us pours out of us because we have received the Lord. And we'll talk about this in a little bit with some application, but I got to ask, I mean, do you see that happening in your life? Is the joy and thanksgiving pouring out of you? And if there's not, if, if you are just kind of dead to the world, and this doesn't affect your heart and your soul and your mind, and if it doesn't bring you to, to, to tears of joy and to thanksgiving and to worship, then you probably haven't received the Lord. This is why worship in the morning is so important when we sing songs to God. And, and, and I, I'm, you know, I've talked about this a, a number of times. I've brought up you know, worship through praise and, and, and through, through music. I've told you guys it's a, it's a form of warfare, really, against the principalities of this world. This is what, how David uses it. But, but even beyond that, it's quite frankly just a showing of the joy and thankfulness that we should have in our hearts. Now, I'm not saying force it. What I'm saying is that when we're hearing a song that is proclaiming the word of God and the greatness of God, then we just can't help but sing along with it. Now, I know some of you are here because you're forced to be here either through Wayside or, or Lifespring. And I just want to recognize that and say some here might be trying to find joy in the wrong things. Might be trying to find joy in the world. Maybe, maybe not even necessarily the, the, uh, 
destructive things of this world. Maybe you're trying to find your joy in sobriety. Maybe you're trying to find your joy in a new relationship or a better relationship or a better marriage. Maybe a better job with better pay. Maybe a new home. Maybe moving to a new state. Maybe you're trying to find your joy in your children. Anything. Just something. But you will not find it. And it will ultimately leave you empty and wanting. Because complete joy can only be found in the word of life. You must believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be saved from your sins. You must repent of your unrighteousness and your failures and cry out to God for mercy. And let me tell you something. This is why we're so thankful because if you do, he will answer He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness, but you must receive the word of life. And lastly, for those of us who are already saved, look closely. He says, these things we write, right? These things we proclaim to you. These things we testify, we write about to you so that our joy may be made complete. Whose joy is being completed through the proclaiming of the truth of the word of life? Ours, it's the joy of the apostles that are being completed. The witnesses. See, you may be saved, but you will not experience the fullness of the word of life until you begin boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel to this lost world. God has you here to preach the gospel. He has you here to to preach the gospel, as Mark says, to every creature. And as Matthew says, to make disciples of all nations. You cannot live like a pagan and claim the joy of Christ. You cannot live as a silent Christian and experience the fullness of joy in the word of life. You must be bold. You must be on the move. You must be ministering and testifying of the greatness of the word of life. This is the proof of our thankfulness. And this is what completes our joy. If you are a Christian and you're moping around and depressed, it's likely that you're probably not proclaiming the word of life. You're probably very self-focused. If you are a Christian and you're struggling with the same sin patterns, it's likely that you're not a very proactive witness testifying about Christ crucified. If you're a Christian and you struggle to discern a biblical worldview from an evil worldview, it's likely because you are too comfortable and complacent in this evil world and you're not used to charging against it with the proclamation of the word of life. You need to become used to being a fool for Christ. Take advantage of every divine appointment God brings. Go and make disciples. Go and preach the gospel and see what joy God will bring in your life. And as you do that, you will see this joy that God builds. He will complete and fulfill this joy in you. You won't want to be lusting after sin anymore because the joy of God is working in you. And I speak, let me tell you, I speak as someone who wrestles with that. Okay? 
I speak as someone who I know when I fall into sin patterns in my life again, I know I'm probably not in prayer. I'm probably not in the word. I'm probably being very self-focused. I'm probably not proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ like I should be. I'm probably not discipling others like I should be. I see, but, and I'll just be transparent. I see a correlation between sins in my life building up and me not doing devotions with my family and my children. When I neglect one, I see the other is on the rise. I've kind of used, and and I, I should have explained this at the beginning, I've kind of used joy and thanksgiving interchangeably throughout this sermon. And I meant to explain that earlier, but this is, this is what, I'm, what I'm trying to, to get at. This thankfulness, this joy that comes out of us. It's because of the truth of these four verses here. As you come to a deeper understanding of who the word of life is, the joy of the Lord and the thanksgiving for how he has made himself known to you will pour out. Mm 